Hello, and welcome to this Pillar Talk podcast. I'm Bryn Rajatharai, PSL Tax Counsel for Europe at Alna Overy. Today, we're going to focus on Pillar 2, the global minimum tax proposal that looks to impose a 15% effective minimum corporation tax rate on the profits of InScope multinationals. In particular, we're going to take a look at some of the practical implications that Pillar 2 could have for M&A transactions and documentation. To help us navigate this complex and evolving area, I'm joined by two experts from our global tax team who have considerable experience in advising on the tax aspects of cross-border M&A. Firstly, we have Hotfried Kinnigan, tax partner based in Amsterdam. Welcome, Hotfried. Thank you, Bryn. It's great to be here. We also have Gareth Banfield with us. He's a tax counsel based in London. Welcome, Gareth. Thanks, Bryn. Looking forward to the discussion. Today we're going to talk about OECD Pillar 2, which is part of the OECD's two-pillar solution to counter tax avoidance by multinational enterprises, and is one of the most significant and ambitious proposals to reform the global tax system in decades. By way of background, the other pillar to these proposals, Pillar 1, is intended to reallocate part of the profits of multinational enterprises to market jurisdictions, even if they don't have physical presence there. But the focus of our discussion today is on Pillar 2, and that's doing something different. Pillar 2 aims to establish a global minimum effective tax rate for multinational enterprises with revenues over 750 million euro. The idea is that Pillar 2 will firstly end the race to the bottom where jurisdictions try to compete to attract multinationals through lower tax rates and secondly potentially lower the risk of multinationals structuring their affairs in a contrived manner to try to push profit-making activities to lower tax jurisdictions. Pillar 2 consists of two main components, the Income Inclusion Rule, or IIR, which looks at the effective tax rate being paid by a group, and to the extent that rate is less than 15% in a particular jurisdiction, the Income Inclusion Rule requires the parent entity of the group to top up the tax paid accordingly. There's also a Backup Rule, which is the Under Tax Payment Rule, which denies deductions or requires some other adjustment, and that applies to the extent that the IIR hasn't done its job in collecting the relevant tax. This might be the case, for example, if the parent entity is in a country that hasn't implemented the IAR. There's a further wrinkle, which is that countries may also choose to implement a domestic top-up tax, which means they get the first bite of the cherry in priority to the IAR or UTPR. So, to get us started, Hotfried, where are we on the implementation of all these rules? Is Pillar 2 really going to happen? Thanks, Bryn. Yes, I think we have to proceed on the basis that it is. We will have a quick recap. The OECD released model rules in 2021 for the two main components of Pillar 2. Plus, we now have OECD commentary and administrative guidance, with the most recent guidance published on 17th of July, closely following the publication of the recent outcome statement, which provided a stock take of the progress that has been made on both pillars. Whilst the adoption of Pillar 2 is not mandatory, we are starting to see the first countries implementing the rules, such as the UK, Korea and Japan. And we have an EU directive, which means that EU member states must implement. We also have a number of other jurisdictions, such as Singapore and Australia, who have all said that they will introduce Pillar 2 rules, but they are in varying stages of implementation. And what exactly will end up being enacted in each jurisdiction remains to be seen. Plus, the domestic top-up taxes that you mentioned, Bryn, will add yet another layer of uncertainty and complexity to all this. However, it's fair to say Pillar 2 is rapidly becoming a reality that we need to get to grips with. I agree, Hotfried. And even though there are still many uncertainties and unresolved issues, 
what we're seeing is that Pillar 2 is already having an impact on how multinational enterprises and their advisors plan, structure and document M&A transactions. Thanks, Gareth. Could you give us an example of that? Well, one of the first questions that arises is who should be taking the risk of any Pillar 2 taxes or adjustments? A good example where we're already seeing this is in joint venture scenarios, um, where there may be multiple investors with different tax profiles and positions. If a joint venture entity is subject to a Pillar 2 top-up tax or is subject to an adjustment as a result of the under-tax payments rules, who should bear the additional tax liability? Should it be the joint venture entity itself or should it be allocated among the shareholders or partners according to their respective shares or interests? That's a very good question, Gareth. And, and I think the answer may depend on a number of factors, such as the type of vehicle, the respective interests of the parties and the extent to which the tax residents or attributes of one of the parties carries with it more Pillar 2 risk. In some cases, the parties may agree to share the risk and the cost of the Pillar 2 proportionally, based on their respective contributions and entitlements. In other cases, the parties may agree to shift the risk and the cost to one or more parties where the risk only arises because of that party's tax residents or attributes. Yes, Hotfried. And I think it's fair to say that these provisions are not always easy to draft or negotiate because they involve a lot of assumptions and projections about how Pillar 2 will apply in practice, as well as how the new rules will interact with the existing tax rules in different jurisdictions. And of course, they also involve a balance of interests and expectations between the parties who may have different views on how to allocate the risk and the cost of the Pillar 2. It's a bit different to a normal scenario, as it may be a combination of the attributes of different parties that leads to the top-up tax being levied, so it will not always be clear who should bear the cost of this. Um, we had an example recently where we had an existing wholly domestic business with both the shareholders and the company in, say, jurisdiction A, and the shareholders were essentially selling around half the business to create a joint venture. The new investor was not from that jurisdiction and wanted to invest via an SPV in jurisdiction B and the sellers sought an indemnity from the investor for any Pillar 2 tax issues that might arise in the JV company on the basis that there shouldn't be any Pillar 2 issues in the wholly domestic situation, and so it was the investment through jurisdiction B that potentially exposed the structure to the Pillar 2 rules. Thanks, Gareth. Hartfried, are there any specific provisions the parties to M&A transactions should be considering? Yes, I do think so, yeah. The parties will want protection from historic risks, will also need to think about what protection they need against future liabilities. So this might mean including specific warranties and indemnities in relation to Pillar 2, such as whether the parties have made or will make any elections or disclosures, and whether the parties have complied or will comply with any reporting or payment obligations under those rules. Given the uncertainty we have been talking about already, the parties may also want to allocate the risk of any changes in the rules such as new jurisdictions implementing Pillar 2 or domestic minimum taxes or changes in the interpretation or application of the rules after the transaction. Yes, I think the risk allocation here will be key. In English law governed M&A documentation, we typically see a quite detailed tax deed, which broadly provides the purchaser with protection against certain unexpected pre-completion tax liabilities in the target companies. Um, while I typically expect that to cover tax liabilities attributable to Pillar 2, um, there are likely to be a number of drafting issues to think through here. Um, for example, how should the typical change of law exclusion apply in the Pillar 2 context if we know the rules are likely to come in, 
but may not necessarily have certainty on their final form. Um, similarly, how should the exclusion for purchase of voluntary acts apply if the pillar two tax liability is attributable to a characteristic of the purchaser rather than something the purchaser does or fails to do? Another example here is a JV transaction where the majority JV shareholder resides in a non-pillar two jurisdiction, um, which could result in the jurisdiction of the JV becoming entitled to levy a top-up tax. The impact of that on the minority JV shareholders who would suffer the top-up tax pro rata would need to be analysed, and there would need to be discussions around how that risk should be allocated as between the JV parties. Um, also, given all the uncertainties we've been discussing already, and the fact that the rules are not yet finalised in most jurisdictions, agreements are likely to need an element of flexibility um, and will to some extent rely on the parties being fair and reasonable in their dealings with each other on this. And Karis, on that point, presumably each party to a transaction might need information or, or cooperation from some of the other parties to enable them to comply with their own obligations. Absolutely. So they may want to include provisions that require them to cooperate and provide each other with information and assistance, such as notifying each other of any audits, inquiries or disputes involving the Pillar 2 rules that could potentially affect the other party, um, providing each other with access to relevant documents and records, and consulting each other on any elections or disclosures under the Pillar 2 rules that could potentially affect the other party. Um, the parties may also want to include provisions that protect the confidentiality of the information provided. That's a good point, Gareth. And the parties may also want to agree some principles or guidelines up front for what happens if disputes or adjustments arise and agree to consult each other and to resolve these fairly and efficiently. And another point on adjustments, Bryn, the parties may need to extend the time limits for making or challenging any claims or payments under a tax deed in relation to the Pillar 2 rules. As, for example, the Dutch rules provide for a long reassessment period of six years and four months in relation to Pillar 2. So there's a real need to include, uh, for instance, a statutory limitation period limitation in the SPA or in other documentation, instead of, for instance, a fixed period of five years in this case. The other significant point that we have seen in the Dutch rules is that they provide for joint and several liability for all companies in a group, irrespective if these are Dutch tax residents or not. People are going to have to think carefully about whom liability can attach to, and how other parties can protect themselves against this. Yes, I think this will also be an important issue the parties will have to grapple with in the UK and elsewhere as well. Tax deeds typically include protections for both the buyer and the seller against secondary tax liabilities, and it may be that something similar is needed to deal with Pillar 2 liabilities that are properly attributable to one party or other. Thank you both. Those are some helpful pointers on what to think about in this context. Hoffrey, do you have any other comments or insights on other implications Pillar 2 could have in an M&A context? Yes, Bryn. I agree with Gareth that the transaction documents may need some flexibility to deal with the Pillar 2 rules. But I also want to emphasise that the transaction documents are not the only point to consider. The parties also need to think about the broader implications of Pillar 2 for the deal structure, the pricing and the modelling. The Pillar 2 rules may affect the cash flows, the returns and the risks of the transaction, and the parties may need to adjust their expectations and assumptions accordingly. As an example, in a recent M&A transaction, we were liaising with an investment bank on the impact Pillar 2 would have on the tax line in the financial model of the target and how the same tax line would change in the financials of competitors, whose stock price served as reference. We pointed out that this analysis might impact the price range of the target materially as the historic ETR 
which initially was taken for granted, was no guarantee for the future ETR at all. And indeed it did. So you can see that the parties will need to monitor developments, implementation and changes in interpretation of the Pillar 2 rules, and be prepared to adapt or renegotiate if necessary. Finally, Pillar 2 is, as you already mentioned, Bryn, part of the OCD two-pillar solution. But it's important to remember this is all being done against the backdrop of various other significant changes to domestic and international tax law that we are having to factor in on a daily basis. These include the ATED 2 rules and other developments, which by the way all seem to have their own acronyms, such as SAFE and of course the US IRA. In my view, being in practice for almost 25 years, the current tax environment is the most challenging one from a technical perspective. This requires careful attention by all stakeholders in this area and creates a further need for deep expertise. Thank you, Hotfried. That's very insightful. So it seems that the Pillar 2 rules, amongst other things, are creating a lot of challenges for M&A transactions, and parties need to be proactive and flexible in addressing them. Thank you both for sharing your expertise and experience with us today. And thank you to those who've joined us for this Pillar Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch with your usual A&O tax contact. For more information on Pillar 2 or other international tax developments, do visit our website at alanovery.com. Many thanks. Many thanks indeed. Thank you.